Good morning. Scripture reading comes from Genesis 11, 1 through 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And there they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for martyr. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to invite you at this moment to silently pray to yourself and ask God that he would speak afresh through his word to you today. That he would make his name great. That his spirit would stir within you and guide you down the life everlasting. Now pray that prayer for the person sitting next to you, that they too would hear God speak, that his spirit would convict and power and guide us into life everlasting. God, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that you are a God who speaks and we find our very life in your very breath. And so we hold fast to you this morning and we ask that you would meet us here, that you would continue to work in us towards greater Christ-likeness for your glory and our joy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the most dangerous things I own is this right here. And, and listen, I love, hey, look at that. I got a text from my wife. And here, you know, honestly, I, lo I love I my iPhone because I get lost a lot. Like, I find I have difficulty just making it from my bed to the shower. So, you know, I love using Waze. That's my directional app of choice. Um, I love that when an emergency strikes, I can call for help with one click of a button. I also love that when I'm in a coffee shop, I can pay for something with Apple Pay. It's both convenient and more secure than using a credit card. I mean, I love my iPhone and all the good that it provides. Amidst all of that, it also presents, at least for me, one of my greatest temptations. And one of the greatest temptations for me is that when I have this with me, I can so easily begin to believe that I can navigate any problem that comes my way or fulfill any desire that stirs up within me all on my own with the help of this little device right here. When I have this with me, I feel like I can have a good enough life all on my own. I can make a world that meets me where I'm at and I don't even have to acknowledge God in the process. Now, I may not, I don't think I would ever say that explicitly. Um, I hope I wouldn't say that explicitly. But I can so subtly and so easily start to live my life that way. 
Instead of reaching for this, I reach for this. Instead of finding my identity in what God has said about me in the gospel, I find my identity in how many people like what I say, whether it be on social media or just broadly in the web. Um, how many people have listened to my sermons? How many people have engaged my portfolio? Whatever it might be. And then at the end of the day, I find myself looking down way more than I find myself looking up or looking around. Isn't it fascinating that the things that we make can so easily make a world where we feel like God is unnecessary? I mean, think about this. Technological innovation at its core helps mitigate pain and increase pleasure. And it's pretty astounding what human beings have developed in order to chase after a utopia. We, we are really good at pursuing and trying to recreate Eden, which isn't all a bad thing, right? Like, we hope that people try to make the world a better place. That's a good thing. But more often than not, we can all too easily try to recreate Eden without God. Make this perfect world, or at least all the accoutrements of what we hope would be a perfect world, without the God who's at the center of the perfect world. And the question that rises up in the midst of all of that is, are we actually happier? Are we doing any better off? Interestingly enough, if you look at the 2019 World Happiness Report, <laughs> what's truly astounding is that the United States continues to decline in happiness in comparison to other nations this world over. And do you want to know what they highlight as one of the primary catalysts for our decline in happiness? Interestingly enough, it's digital media and the addiction and consumption of digital media. One of our greatest technological advances has become one of our greatest downfalls. It seems like no matter what we do and we try to create and recreate this Eden without God, no matter how advanced our technology, no matter how much we progress as human beings, given enough time, the things that we make, if they're really trying to make this perfect world without God, they leave us undone. There's one message that's consistent and abundantly clear across the pages of Scripture, and it's this. You can't have Eden without God. You can't. And that's not anything new, right? That's, that, that's nothing. But and you, you look throughout history, it seems like over and over and over again, we, we, we relearn this lesson that we can't recreate Eden without God. We can't have Eden without God. And yet we do it again and again. Why? Why do we keep repeating this? Why does it seem like every generation has to go through untold injustice that was seemingly a surprise, unintended outcome of our technological advancement before we realize we can't recreate Eden without God? Why do we do this? Maybe if we could find the core reason why behind this fruitless pursuit, we could have a better understanding that could lead us to a better place. Which is why I'm so excited about our text today. It's not the first time we actually see human beings trying to recreate Eden without God. But what's so unique about this passage is I think it's maybe one of the most transparent as to why we go about recreate, recreating Eden without God. If you're new, we've been walking through the book of Genesis for a little bit now. And the brilliance of this book in the book of Genesis is that 
it gives us a window into why the world is the way that it is and how the creator God continues to work in his world. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, where we're not only going to discover why we do this, but also chart a path into how we could do it differently and find ourselves in a different place altogether. Maybe, just maybe, anticipate the Eden our hearts long for. Okay? So Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, found on page 8 of our community Bibles, if you're using that. We read, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, at first reading, those two verses, they feel like just background setup, right? It's like the beginning of a story. You're in Massachusetts and she's driving a Ford. It's like, oh, okay, this is unnecessary. Like what? No, but there's actually, when you understand, when, whenever you're reading scripture, don't just look at the text. Look at the context to find meaning. We don't bring the meaning to the text. It's here. And there's something really dramatic happening in what seem to be two very boring verses, okay? But we need to get the context. Join me. Look back now at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. This is when Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, they're coming off the ark, and God says something. He reiterates the command that he gave to the very first man and woman back in Genesis 1. He tells Noah and his wife and Noah's sons and their wives, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Once again, this language of fruitful isn't just procreation, it's productivity. But the emphasis being here on fill the earth. Because if you read through Genesis 9 and then you get to Genesis 10, something astounding happens. It looks like everybody's doing exactly what God told them to do. Genesis chapter 10, verse 5, you read, From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. And on and on it gives this list of different people who went to their own lands. You get to chapter 10, verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then you get to Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language. Wait a second. <laughs> I thought we just read of a bunch of different languages. This is what's so helpful in navigating chapters 9 through chapter 11. They're not chronological or sequential necessarily. Chapter 9 and chapter 10, you start to think, well, people are just obeying God. And then you get to chapter 11 and you go, that's not the story. That's actually not how this all took place. And it's meant to shock us and awe us and ask the question, what actually happened? So let's look together at these next couple verses. They migrated from the east and they settled. And then we read in verse 3 that they actually make bricks and mortar. They were supposed to be filling the earth. They were supposed to be going out. And they decided, you know what? We're going to stay right here. And can you blame them? I mean, this is after the flood. I mean, every step you take away from the ark... Noah and these early human beings. Now, every step you take away from the ark is a step into the unknown. In the face of danger, you don't know what's around the curve, but when you're out on the plain, the plain of Shinar, you can see everything. You get used to the weather. You can start to do some prediction and some planning. Sure, God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, but we're going to settle right here. And then their first technological advancement are bricks. Now, if you're supposed to be filling the earth, 
bricks don't set you up for that. Bricks are great. They're really good, right? They're, they're strong. They're sturdy. They can build a great foundation and a place that protects you from the storm and so on. But if you're supposed to be migrating, if you're supposed to be moving throughout the earth, their, their insecurity led to a technological advancement to create a world that's complete in rejection to God. Right here. You know what? We're going to create our own place of safety, our own place of security, our own place of comfort, and we'd like to stay right here. Thank you very much. Now, if you look in your Bibles and you look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, and the passage that was just read for us, let me ask you, what's missing there? Go ahead and give it a glance. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. What's missing is there's absolutely no mention of God. There's no curiosity as to where he lands on this issue. There's no curiosity as to where God is or pursuing of him and his presence. This is what we would like to do. And they begin to make Eden without God. Slowly building structures, infrastructure, as a way of creating a world in which God isn't needed. Now, why do they do this? Let's look at verses 3 and 4. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, you'll notice there's this repetition, let us, let us make, let us build, let us make. If you're reading through Genesis, this should bring you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God, when he's making humankind, says, let us make humankind in our image. This is Eden language. Once again, they are making, remaking Eden, but trying to do so without God. These human beings who were made out of dust to image and point back to their creator God take the same dust and they make bricks, but they build a structure that points back to themselves. This is the height of arrogance. And as I was reading through this, as someone who's passionate about the city, I was looking for other things. I was like, well, maybe there's more to this story but I can't find any social injustice. I can't find sexual immorality. Actually, I find good things. I find unity. <laughs> I, see, I see urban development. But God, as we'll see, dismantles this whole project, not because of social injustice, not because of sexual immorality, but because arrogance is one of the greatest injustices and infractions and treasonous actions that we can occur against God. Our pride and our arrogance. These early human beings, they didn't just want God's place. They wanted God's place of honor. They didn't want to just create or recreate Eden without God. They wanted the praise that only God rightly deserves. They wanted the world to look on and say, wow. Rather than being dispersed, they anchored themselves here, seeking to recreate Eden without God to make a name for themselves arrogance, pride, and seeking to be like God and supplant the one 
that can only be worthy of praise and honor to the utmost. And we're the same way. You see, this isn't just a revelation into to a moment in time. This is a revelation into the human heart. We see an amazing, transparent picture of why you and I constantly are trying to recreate Eden without God. And here's the reason we do this. We want our name to be known more than God's. You may think, oh, that's not me. Wait a second. Wait a second. We love to have our name on the mug. We love it when people thank us personally because we did a really good job. We love it when we feel extraordinarily significant. We love to experience praise. And not all of that's bad. We also love to be known. But deep down, when we start to recreate a world without God, deeply behind that, this self-sufficiency is a longing not just to be known, but to be adored, praised, and worshipped. So I want to ask you this question because this is one of the most transparent pictures as to why we go about our lives without God. Where are you trying to make a name for yourself? Where are you trying to make a name for yourself? Here's a little hint in the process of discernment. It's probably the area you feel like God is unnecessary. It's an area where you feel like you're pretty competent. Feels like it, it might be an area where you feel like you've got control. So why do I need God's counsel here? Why do I need his insight? His commands? I don't need his commands. I know what I'm doing here. I'm the expert. Prayer? I've got this. And the reason we push back and we feel like God is unnecessary and we feel so self-sufficient is because if we can really lean into this area of competency, then finally we can make a name for ourselves. But if I need God, if he actually does have to help me here, then not only am I vulnerable and I'm not in control, but if I do receive any praise, it feels shallow because I know I needed God's help in the first place. So where are you trying to make a name for yourself? I know for me, um, you know, the pastor's job is kind of, it's got some uniquenesses to it, as every job does. And I think one of the greatest temptations for me getting up here in front of people week in and week out is making this moment here about me. And honestly, it's one of my deep fears is that when people walk away, they say Gabe's a great communicator or it becomes about how I perceive or am perceived or, oh, I hope that project goes really well because then maybe they'll say Gabe is a great leader. And it becomes all about my name rather than what God is doing in Christ through his church. It's something that I have to constantly have reassessment around. I have to have voices speaking into my life because I'm terrified that it's going to be about my name. And when churches become about the name of the pastor or pastors, it becomes toxic places. So what about you? That's not unique to the church. It's just on display in the church, and we're shocked by it in the church. What about your work? What about your vocation? Is your primary goal to kind of get your boss or your employees, or your coworkers, or your teammates to sing your praises? Are you looking for avenues to kind of pop in your head and tell a story of a victory so that you can receive accolades? When you're with friends at happy hour, are you constantly trying, are you constantly trying to tell that one-up story? 
to prove that, you know what, you are a really great person and you're very strategic on what stories you tell. You only tell the stories of when you're doing really great, but when the stories are really bad, you kind of keep quiet because you're painting a picture of who you are and you want to receive those praises and you want your name to be known more than anyone else at the table, even if Jesus happened to be sitting there with you. What about at home with your housemates or your spouse or your children? Do you want your children to think that you've got all your, the answers, the awesome person in the room? There's no one better. Your housemates, are you only cleaning when people are there so that they can follow it up with praise? <laughs> you, oh, that, that struck a chord. Okay. Um, what is it for you? Where are you trying to make a name for yourself? Because we so desperately, when we start to go down this self-sufficiency path, when we try to recreate Eden without God, it's because we want our name to be more known, more well-known than God's. And the reason this is so important to discern and to figure out and to navigate is because, listen, if you start chasing after your name being up in lights, if you start chasing, and listen, if you actually just Google this, it's all over the place. How to make a name for yourself. It's all, just Google, not now, but Google it later. (laughs) It's like, all these different strategies and how to get your name up in lights to make your name great. Pursue it, chase it. There's a strategy, there's a pipeline. I mean, there's all these. But if you chase after that, listen to me, your name will be great, but not in the way you want it to be. And the irony of all this comes on full display when we come back to the text. Look with me here at Genesis chapter 11, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man really that's the children of Adam it's pointing you back to Eden again this is the same mistakes that their papa made all right so the the children of Adam had built now I want you to imagine the scene and this is the the picture that's being painted You have all these people who are gathering together. They're unified. They're going to make a great name for themselves. They're going to build a tower that goes all the way up into the heavens. And everybody's going to come and want to come watch and see what we're doing. And then God's up in heaven and he goes, are they making something? I can't really make it out up here. It's so small. Hey, you guys want to come down? Let's go see what they're building. So God kind of walks around and goes, oh, they were building a tower. You know, way to go. Guys, that's just, that's just awesome. That's really small. Like, I mean, this is a moment. And this isn't like, this isn't a theological statement that God didn't know what was going on. So he needed to go figure it out. You don't know. No, when the author here is portraying in a beautiful irony, just how minute and small our projects are when we're trying to make a great name for ourselves. And God goes, do you realize how small this is in the grand scheme of things? And you're trying to put that at the center of your life? And in the midst of this humor, there's something really concerning happening here. And God won't sit by. It's not because God is like insecure and he's worried that they're now going to not need him anymore because they're going to have this tower up in the heavens and they're going to scale the height. No. It's because God sees what they're doing and how they're linking arms together in this self-sufficient, self-exalting project and how it will destroy them in the end. And how it will destroy each other in the end. And God in his compassion, he won't sit idly by. Remember, think about the context again. Sometimes when we look at Genesis 11, it can feel so far from the flood back in Genesis 9. But in reality, the flood waters have just receded. 
Noah and his family. This is still early on, right after the flood. God has watched as humanity unified in their self-sufficiency and in their arrogance brought untold corruption and violence the world over. And God will not allow this to happen again. And so in his compassion, we read in Genesis 11, verses 7 through 9, Come, let us, this is when God now says let us, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The city ends in ruins, and they become famous for it. They become infamous, and they're known for their ruins. If you look across the Old Testament, the word Babel shows up 200 times, and it's always used as a byword for corruption and failure, as anti-God structure and posture. They became famous. But in reality, they became infamous. They were chasing after their name to be great, and God gave them exactly what they wanted, but not how they wanted it in the end. You see, when we try to make our names more known than God's, the reality is, is that God may make your name infamous. God's greatest, some of God's greatest graces in life is that he doesn't give us what we want. And some of his greatest acts of judgment are when he gives us just exactly what we think we want. And it still happens today. You can think of names, of institutions, of people who sought greatness, who sought to make waves and then have become bywords for corruption or failure. Enron. That's a name, but it comes with a whole host of emotions of corruption and failure. Hitler. A whole host of corruption and failure. Kanye West. Jesus, right? And yet, utter turmoil and sanity that goes across the pages of media. Michael Scott. <laughs> Figured I'd go with a humorous one somewhere in there. He buys his own world's best boss mug, right? And yet we all say, I don't want to be like that. And yet some of us, you know... There's these names. When we go about making our name higher than any other name, it leads to infamy rather than a famous persona that we long for. So what can we do? If we got to this place, if they got to this place building this tower because of self-sufficiency, because they were kind of trying to do it on their own and make their name great, what can we do? It feels like we fall into these sorts of patterns by accident. It seems like it almost is destined for us. So what can we actually do to not become infamous, to not try to make our name great, to even have root out any sort of pride or arrogance? What we need is we need God to come down again. And to be very clear, he will. We can ignore him, but he will not ignore us forever. Just as we've seen here, they can act like God doesn't exist, but one day he will come. Because he cares too much for us and for those around us. 
the acts of injustice that are bred by pride and arrogance, that destroy communities, that destroy his good world, that corrupt his creation. He will not let continue to go on forever. And he will either visit and he will confuse and disrupt, which we think God wouldn't do that. Yes, he would, because he cares too much. Ask yourself, maybe there's some disruption or some confusion that's happening because this is a self-exaltation project and God's trying to get our attention. And he might be doing it at the end of the day that your life might become a tale of warning to everyone else who looks on. So beware. You want your name to be more known than anyone else's, even God's? You may get it. God may make your name infamous. But praise God, that's not the only way he works. Yeah, see, God, he can work in spite of us. What's fascinating is they fulfill the cultural mandate. They actually go and have to fill the earth now because they're so confused they can't work together. Isn't that fascinating? God in his punishment still fulfills his command. And then they go throughout the world. It ends dark here, but that's not the only way that God works. He can work in spite of us, but he can also work in light of us. And it may seem like a subtle shift, but it comes with having a posture of inviting God to make his name known more than yours. Inviting God to make his name known more than yours. Think back to those spaces that we talked about earlier, those spaces where you're chasing to make your name known, those areas where it feels most natural and easy to leave God out of the equation. What if instead of those spaces being a place to platform yourself and, and in our insecurity trying to chase after glory, what if instead of those being a place where we're seeking praise, those become opportunities where we can invite God to make much of himself? What would it look like? What would it look like at work, when somebody asks you, hey, I, I've noticed that you've got like this deep joy going on. Where does that come from? And instead of saying, you know, I have a great exercise schedule and I knocked this last project out of the park, what if instead it was something like, you know what, God's been teaching me a lot lately. And I've just been, I've just been really delighting in him and how he's been shaping me. And I don't mean to be cliche, but have genuine, ask those questions. What would it look like to take those moments as opportunities for God to make much of himself. When you're at home, what if, what if you started asking God to give you a quietness of spirit so you cleaned when nobody else would notice? And so when there's the pleasantries of surprise, like who took out the garbage, you know? And then they discover through surprise, not because you broadcasted it, but they discovered, oh man, what a beautiful picture that is. When you think about those moments with friends, instead of looking for the place to one-up. Do you remember, have you, have you ever listened to Brian Regan, the old comedian? You know, it feels old to me now. But he had this old stand-up where he would basically say, I just wanted to be the man on the moon, like the man who landed on the moon. So whenever you're at the party, somebody's like, well, what did you do today? Man, I just crunched a bunch of numbers. What about you? I did brain surgery. Oh, really? Well, I landed on the moon. Like, that, like the ultimate one-up. Like what if instead, when you're at those happy hours with friends, you didn't try to one-up the person sitting next to you, but you took a posture of listening. And you took those opportunities to ask pointed questions about their own walk with God and how they're going. I mean, what would it look like to invite God back into those moments where it would seem so easy to leave him on the margins?
You know, a great example of this, if, if you were able to join us on Wednesday, was Nate Collins, hearing a little bit of his story. As a gay man who's seeking to follow Jesus and how Jesus defines human sexuality consistently across the scriptures, he's longing to follow Jesus and trying to figure out what does it look like for him. And when he was in college at that point in his life, and he's quick to say, listen, this doesn't define everybody's story, but for me, he found himself with his girlfriend, Sarah. And he said, you know, Sarah, I wish, which is his wife now, and they have three kids, but he said, Sarah, I, I wish that I could just naturally be caught up with passion and chase after you and just love you and just like, it just would come naturally to me. But in our relationship, I feel like every step I take is like a step of faith towards you. It doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel easy. And I feel like I'm just leaning completely in dependence upon God. He was utterly vulnerable. And you know what she said in response to him? I'd way rather have a future husband who didn't just assume he had it right, but was constantly asking, is this what God has for me? That's the kind of picture that God is calling us to. To make his name great. It doesn't mean it's easy. Oh, but it's so beautiful. We need God to come down. So will you invite God to make his name known more than yours. And praise God, when you look at the narrative of Scripture and the whole storyline, the storyline of Scripture isn't an invitation to you and to me to build a stairway to heaven, to work tirelessly, to try to eventually reach up to God that he might take notice if we're good enough, if we work hard enough. No, that is completely antithetical to the storyline of Scripture. Instead, what we're invited to, what we come to see, the beautiful hope of the biblical narrative when we look at the world is that God always comes down to us. Over and over again, at the very beginning, God comes down and he walks in the garden with the very first human beings. Here in Genesis 11, he disrupts in order to bring ultimate flourishing the world over. And again and again, we see this. He comes down in the tabernacle. He comes down when he's with the prophets. And then at just the right time, Galatians 4 says, God came down in human form in the person of Jesus. And he not only became human, but he went further down to become a servant. And not just a servant, he came all the way down to die a falsely convicted criminal on the cross. And then rose again victoriously on the third day and then ascended to the right hand of God the Father. But he didn't abandon us. If anything, we find in Pentecost that God comes down again in the Holy Spirit and indwells those who hold on to the name of Jesus. Acts 2, in many ways, is a reversal of Babel. Because there you have in Jerusalem people of all different kinds of languages and tongues hearing from one mouth the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and they're hearing it in their own tongue. There's now unity in the midst of diversity because of the one named Jesus at the center. Right? And throughout the biblical narrative, we see now God creating this church with the name of Jesus upon whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he and he alone is Lord. And the church that he is crafting, this community, this family is so diverse. It's made up of different cultures, different languages across the globe. It's made up of different orientations, different genders, different socioeconomic realities coming together underneath the name of Jesus, making his name great, pushing back against the towers of humanity and the false Edens that surround us. And then we gather together today 
looking forward to the time when he will come back in his fullness. And what will he bring with him? But a city of his own making, the new Jerusalem. And it will be good because he has made it. And it will be diverse, made up of people of every tribe and tongue. But what unifies this city is not good feelings, but an amazing good person by the name of Jesus. And when he comes, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. We will finally be able to collaborate and the world will be as it ought to be. Eden will be reestablished, but it will be more beautiful, more diverse, more perfect than we can even fathom. And those who honor his name today will share in his honor. See, this is one of the greatest kept secrets in the pursuit of the life we long to live. Is that in making his name great above all, God actually invites us in to share his honor. And we'll see this actually when you get to Genesis 12 next week with Abraham when God tells Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. Why? Because Abraham's about making God's name great. And those who seek to honor his name above all else, their names are written in the book of life and God will invite them to share his honor and enjoy life in the new Eden, the new creation once again. So if you long... When I know we all do long for that Eden to be recreated. If you long to know genuine honor and the life you long to live, stop chasing after making your name great and invite God to make his name great in your life. Be looking for those opportunities where the spirit might be guiding you and then we can maybe join with the words of the Apostle Paul in crying out, come Lord Jesus, come. Will you invite him? Will you give up this self-exalting project, whatever it might be in your life? Let's make his name great. Let's do that as a campus. Let's do that as a church. Because there, and there alone, is where the city flourishes. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.